grateful for your word, that you have not left us silent, but you have pulled us together and, and we have it, we can read it, and we know that it's more than just words on a page, but indeed as your spirit meets those words and the truth that's there, that something supernatural happens in our lives. It cuts deep into our hearts and our lives. It declares who you are. It reminds us of who we are and our need for you. And it tells us how to live. It looks back to the history of your redemptive plan. And it traces that for us of your purpose. And it places in the center this person of Jesus Christ. The one that we celebrate this time of year who didn't just come as a baby, although he did, he grew up and he died on our behalf. And it explains all of that to us. And this morning, my prayer for me and for us is that we would fall more in love with you, that we would, in a deeper and richer way, understand who you are and all that you've done for us. That when we leave here this morning, our passion and our heart for you, our vision to be about what you were about will be fanned in the flame, that our desire would be to live for you even more uh, diligently, consistently, and passionately. passionately. So this morning, Father, uh, use this time in your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In, in the first service, I had one of those funny out-of-body experiences when I looked down to preach and, or to read and my Bible was sitting right down there. And you kind of freeze and you go, I have to go get that. And everybody laughed, of course, and it was funny. But I was struck again by the importance of this book that God has given to us. And I thought, if I was to preach without it, I wouldn't have anything worth saying. And you wouldn't need to be here because there would be nothing to listen to. And so reminded again of the importance of God's word for us this morning. And I'm going to read... Here, Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. We are studying through this book um, in our Monday morning Bible study. And a few uh, weeks ago, when we covered this chapter, it just struck me the amazing picture here and the foretelling of Christ who would come as God is kind of setting the parameters and setting the pattern of what He would do in this chapter, this high point that we have in the historical narratives of the Old Testament. So let's read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place 
and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. We have in this account a picture of promises that God gives to David. And to help us with a little bit of the context of, of the books of Samuel, the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, trace for us really the transition of Israel from the period of the judges to the period of the kingship, the period of the monarchy. And so we have this situation where kings are being transitioned to. And of course, we might know the first two kings. The first king was Saul, who was selected by the people, and, and Saul's um, kingship was not so good. He did not follow after God. And then, of course, David follows in his suit, and God anoints David early on in 1 Samuel. But there's a period of time that passes, and eventually David comes to his throne in the first part of this second half of the books of Samuel in Samuel 2. And David becomes to his throne and is established as king over all of Israel in this particular situation that, that we have. And, of course, if you read through the books, you see a contrast between Saul and David, between Saul, who is a man that followed after his own heart, and David, who followed after God's, and the contrast of the way that these men would lead. But we see a transition that's taking place. But in any narrative that we have, and you read through the Old Testament, it's important to ask, how does this narrative fit into the author's message? What is it that the, that the author is doing with this particular account? Because the Old Testament is more than just a, an incidental collection of stories. The Old Testament is a collection of stories that have been fashioned and placed together for a particular purpose, in a particular kind of way, for a message that God would have for his people. And of course, the, the two questions we ask is, what's the main character and what's the storyline or the, pro, the plot line of this? And we find that the main character, of course, is God. We don't have to look too long to find that God is the beginning and the end of indeed all of the Bible, all of it from Genesis to Revelation, that he is the one that is carrying out his plan. And the storyline is really what God is doing. The, the, the authors who take these stories, the, the small stories, and place them together, we find are then weaving together this entire storyline of God. And they place them side by side. And if you were in Chad's Sunday school class with college students, you would be hearing this in a much more detailed kind of way, walking through the drama of history. But we see that the story is what God is doing and that the main character is God. Whether explicitly present or implicit, he is there. And that each count, each story is, is a part and connected to this broader story. And indeed, we can only understand what's happened in the small story as we know how it connects in with the broader one. In this particular situation, we have a high point 
on the landscape of Old Testament narrative. We have a high point in the storyline of what God is doing. And we see this picture of David and these promises that God gives to David as king as he has established him there. And I see these high points. They're high points because people have looked back to them. And they identify them as those those reference points. As we look to it, we realize everybody that followed looked to that point, even at the time of Christ, that this one would come in the line of David. And in my mind, I had this picture. It's kind of like a beacon, and and I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And although I I got this wrong in the first service, it's the third story in that trilogy There's a picture of beacons that are lit across the landscape of Middle Earth. And these beacons were lit lit to send a message from Gondor to Rohan, if you know the storyline. And one would be lit, and then the other one would be lit. And the the, the picture shows kind of across the landscape where these, these beacons would go across. And a message was being sent across the land. And this isn't sent so much across the land as it's sent through history. And there's a number of these beacons, there's a number of these bright points in the history of the church, in the history of the Old Testament, where it seems to burn a little brighter. It seems to tell us a little more about who God is. God seems to illuminate and disclose a little more about his plan and what he is intending to do. And this is one of those beacons. This indicates in a vivid and undeniable way the vision and the plan of God that we see here. I'm going to walk through just a few of these. We don't have time, not going to, but just a couple of these other high points, a couple of these beacons in throughout the Old Testament because they connect with this one. The first one we might look at is in Genesis chapter 12. And if you'll turn with me there, we have this setting apart, this calling of, of Abram. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you see what God is doing, right? He's carving out. He says, there's a whole new nation that I'm going to establish through the line of, of Abram, soon to become Abraham. And it's through you and through your offspring that there will be a blessing to all the nations. So God's pattern is set here through the nation of Israel. And as you read certainly through the rest of the, the first five books of the Bible, you see the expansion of what God intends to do through Abraham and the, the children of Abraham through Israel. And if you were to move, you can look also in chapter 15, and there's a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he says, you will have an offspring and you will have a land. And God places his own name, his own person, if you will, on the line by making this covenant with Abraham. He says, if I don't fulfill on this promise... I will cease to be who I am. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham there. And so we have the picture, one of the beacons in the Old Testament. Another one we might look to is in the book of Exodus. And we get to that point and we find that, the, the, that Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And we know that for 400 years. And God shows up on the scene in a fiery bush that doesn't consume the bush. And he declares himself to be Yahweh. I am that I am. He says, I am the self-sustaining God. And he calls Moses. He says, I've called you to redeem my people. And what God does, he sets the pattern for his salvation, his redemption for his people. And he says, I'm the initiator here. I will save my people. It is by my power that they will be saved. 
And then you remember the Passover land that there would be blood that would be spilt and it would be placed in the doorposts in order for wrath to be adverted for this to take place. And he didn't save them just to release them, but he brought them to make them his own, to bring them to himself and worship him. And so we have the pattern there that God has set in the Old Testament. And then, of course, we have the law, another one, the giving of the law, where God says, this is the nature of our relationship. This is how it is to be. I am a holy God. And because of that, the way we relate must be in a certain kind of way. So we have the stipulations of the law that were certainly fulfilled in Christ And then we can move on to the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, we have the conquest, the promised land that God would give to his his people. He now brings them into this land. Again, by supernatural kinds of acts, he brings them there through Joshua. You remember a whole generation had died off, and now he is bringing them. And again, it's, it's his power that he leads them into the land that he had promised so many years ago under Abraham that he would give them a land. But what's interesting between that time period, that, if you will, that beacon of Joshua and the conquest to the point in time that we're at now in 2 Samuel, there's approximately 400 years that have passed by. And that 400 years has been very quiet in terms of God's revelation of himself. And indeed, at the first part of 1 Samuel, you can find a phrase there that's very telling about this time period. And the, the, the phrase goes like this. That the word of God was rare in those days. That the word of God was very rare. That God did not disclose much. And so we understand that there's not much going on. There was a beacon to look at in the past. There's a beacon that's coming in Samuel. But there's, there's a sense of, of quiet that God has not revealed much. And so as we come to this, this setting where the, the monarchy is established. And God is, is just beginning to place on the horizon for them this other beacon, this other picture, this other high point in his promise to David. A couple things that are helpful for us, if you turn back to 2 Samuel, if you're there. One is that if you're reading through this, this passage, you'll find that this section where we have a speech from Yahweh, a speech from God, is very lengthy. And the length of it tells us it should be a clue to us that something special is going on here. The longest section a speech from God that we have from some 400 years. So us reading through history go, okay, something special is going on here. The other thing that's important is that while all the chapters around this chapter are about what hum- human, humanity is doing, what the kingdom's doing, what people are doing, this chapter is about what God will do. God proclaims in this chapter what he will do. And some 20 plus times in the chapter, you have the statement where God says, I will, with a promise that follows. And he is the active party in bringing that about. And so we have this great picture of God saying, okay, that God is stepping on the scene and now he's revealing, he's disclosing his plans and his intention. He is showing us more vividly at this point in time what he intends to do. And the central point of the promise comes through the monarchy. It comes through the kingship. It comes through this line of David, and that's important for us. Because the setting is David. Here he is, and you can picture David after many years of waiting, after being anointed, he's now king. He's king over Judah. He's king over Israel. He's king over all of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. His throne has been established there. The chapter just preceding this chapter, David has brought the ark out of 20 years of obscurity into now the capital city. And so it's central in the worship of Israel. And so all these pieces have come together in order to set up the scene for what God intends to do. 
And the message, the central message of God, God's promises, is, the message is that it is through David. It is through this line. And he narrows it, if you will. If you think of through Abraham, he says it's through you and through this nation. And now he narrows it and says, now what I intend to do, my plan for redemption comes through David. It comes through the kingship. It comes through this monarchy. And the question I want to ask this morning is we think of the context. We think about what God is doing and revealing himself to us and his plans. I want to ask this question. What is it that we can learn about God's plans, his intentions for salvation, for redeeming his people by looking at this story? What do we learn about God's big story by looking at the small story? Or to flip-flop it, what do we learn, what can the small story teach us about God's broader story? And I hope that makes sense. We're, we're going to look at the smaller story of what's taking place in chapter 7 and what that tells us about what God is doing across the landscape of his plan to save his people. Well, the first point I want to make, the first thing I think we can draw out of this is that we see that God, in, in even the use, as I mentioned before, his promises, when he says, I will, I will, I will, he is the one that is the active party in this, that it's, it's God's sovereign, that his sovereign purposes work are initiated by him or are established by him primarily, but it's in the midst of sinfulness and failure that he establishes them. It's, it's in the midst, not of good people that he established, and not in the midst of even men like David. We're going to find out something more about David here in just a little bit, but it, it is in the midst of failure and brokenness that he establishes his sovereign purposes, and he does that to reveal his faithfulness, to show, I can do it. This is what I will do through you. It's not Israel per se. It's not David per se. It is what God will do in his choice and so the nation itself and the monarchy uh, had started and was established under very, um, very wrong kinds of uh, leadings by the people. If you remember back in chapter 8, the, the reason they wanted a, a monarchy, the reason they wanted a, a king is because every other nation had a king. And so they wanted a king. And so their motivation was wrong. And yet God foresaw that they would want a king. And he gave them a king like they wanted and, and saw and then he gives them a second king in David, one like God would, would, call him, uh, would call him to lead. And so even the monarchy, even the, the kingship we find was flawed. And yet God ordained it for his purposes. But not just the, the monarchy itself, but David himself. We've heard this phrase that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man. And it's amazing. There's some places you find great faith and great diligence and great holiness in David. But there's some places where you find just the opposite. And if you keep reading in the book of 2 Samuel, in verse 11, just, or chapter 11, just a few chapters later, just after God has given David this great promise, we see this great sin that David commits. That David's sin with Bathsheba, this adultery that he commits with her. And then she becomes pregnant. And then what does he do? But he... he um, he plans to have her husband murdered um, in battle, Uriah. And so you have this situation. If you read through chapter 11, the question that come to your mind should be like, how can God work his plan through this? How can God work his plan through a man who would do this? These kinds of sins, this kind of thing. And yet to read that and to recognize what God would do through him, and then we reflect back on our own lives and we go, we're not much better. 
That should bring us great hope because God will establish his plans even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of weakness, even in the midst of sin. And of course, you can go on with the nation's failure. It's chronicled well. Bill, as he's uh, leading us through Habakkuk, you, you realize that uh, at that point in Habakkuk that, the, that Judah, uh, Israel's been destroyed in Samaria, the, the country, the capital's fallen by Assyria, and then we have Babylon taking, will take the rest of Judah into exile. And so we know the country's history of idolatry and their faithlessness from God is, is chronicled well. We know the rest of their story, and yet we know what God has said is that he will establish his purposes. He says, I will do this because it's me and not you. It's what I will do. And again, the encouragement that brings us is incredible because we look at our lives and go, we need one who will unilaterally step into our lives, change our hearts, and enable us to follow him. We cannot do that on our own. We do not have that capacity. We might have good days, we might have good moments, but we have plenty of moments that were exactly the opposite, and so we need him to do that. We find in our own lives this kind of idolatry that, that they, they wanted Israel wanted a king like the rest of the nations, and we seek after a kind of protection, a kind of control that the world can offer as opposed to entrusting ourselves to God. And so that brings us great hope to know that God will establish his purposes, his plans in our lives. The second point I think is important for us, I had mentioned this earlier, as we look at this story in, in 2 Samuel 7 and these promises to, to David is that we, can't, we can do nothing for God until he does something for us. And again, it's kind of a simplistic statement, but it is so true that there's nothing, even if we try, that we could do that God hasn't already established in us. And what's important here is we look at the text. Um, this whole text turns on, on one word, and it's interesting. The dialogue between God and between Nathan for David turns on one word, and the word is house. In Hebrew, the one word I remembered is, is house, and it's by it. So I just remember that because my kids always joked about that. So by it. it. It turns on this word house. Um, and the idea, there's two different ways that it's used. David, if you see there, you get the picture, right? The picture of David who is in his house. God has established it. He's had this house that's built. Describes it as having cedar-lined house. You know, it must smell really nice. Uh, no moths or whatever, but the, it's, a, it's a great house. And he's sitting there, and he realizes that the ark of God is down the street in a tent. And he says, well, something's not right here. And so you have this desire that David has in verse, in verse 2 uh, to build God a tent, to build him a house, rather. And the, Nathan said, or the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan says, Go do something about this. This is a, this is a good thing. But then you see how God turns the, the story, right? He turns it later on and he says, essentially what he says is, I didn't ask for a tent, or I didn't ask for a house. This isn't something that I wanted. Indeed, what I have done is just traveled around in, in a tent, and that's the way that it has been. I didn't really ask for a house. And so you have David wanting to build God a house, and God says, no, it's not a house that you're going to build for me, it's what I'm going to build for you. And he says later on in verse 11, he says, no, I will build a house for you. I will do something for you. What's important here, again, we don't see necessarily anything wrong with David's in, in, intentions. Nothing necessarily wrong that he, would, that he would want to build God a house, that there's something, some disparity here between the house he's in and the tent that the, the ark of God is in. But what's wrong is it seems to be a subtle clue, a subtle, a subtle understanding 
here that God asks the question, what's really most appropriate for my presence? What is the most appropriate structure for me to dwell in? Is it in a, a house that is fixed to which people come to me? Or is it a movable tabernacle like I, I gave orders for earlier in the, in the law so that I could be and dwell with my people where they are? And so the question we ask is, what's appropriate for a structure for God? And, that's, and, and indeed, there's nothing wrong with the, the temple because Solomon will go on to build it. But God essentially says to David, um, I didn't ask for a house. And he says, why did I, why I didn't ask for a house? And God, this is his line really to David. He says, I don't need a house that you can build for me, but you will need a house that I can build for you. I don't need anything you can do for me, but you will need what I can do for you. You and everyone that follows you and everyone that preceded you will need what I can do for you and what I will do through you. And so this idea of a temple, everything turns on, and we realize that David wanted to build house of God, house for God first, and he said, no, I need to build something first, and then we can build on top of that. The house that David wanted to build was a residence for God. Solomon would go on to build it, but that temple would be destroyed. That structure was actually destroyed several times. It also cannot contain God. It can't contain who God is. And it was a house, it was a temple that was built by hands. But God says, the house that I will build for you is one that is eternal, that can never be destroyed. It's a house that's not built by hands. And it's a house that will contain my presence. The house that I will build will come in the form of Jesus Christ, my son. And he will be the fullness of God. And in him will reside all of who I am for you to see. And all who find themselves in and connected with that house will also find that the presence of God resides in them as well. It's not in a man-made structure. It's in what God will do. It's in the structure that he will put together. It's not a house built by hands. It's the dynasty through whom would come the Messiah. And the spiritual principle for us is pretty simple. We can do nothing for him until he does something to us and in us and for us. It's a work that he must do in us. He must build first and we can build on top of that. And we understand that and we can read through the scriptures and we find the incapacity that we have. Read Ephesians chapter 2 and we have this picture there that describing that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses before God and we needed God to make us alive the passage we read in our responsive reading in Isaiah chapter 53, 53 talked about all of us like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way, describing our situation before God. Isaiah 64 describes our righteous deeds, our good deeds as filthy rags before God. There's nothing we can do that's, that's not unclean before him. So it's a work that he must do. And as he does that work in us, through us, and to us, we find that we're then able to give something back. And it's like that story that C.S. Lewis tells of the boy who wants to give something to his father, and, but he doesn't have any money. His pockets are empty. And so what does he do? He goes to his father and says, can I have some money to buy you a gift? And he buys him a gift and he gives it back to his father. And the father is pleased. Even though the father knows that where this came from was me, that he was the one that provided for it, God is the one who provides for anything that we give back to him. But our own legalism, our own pride, our own attempt to build something before God continues to come in and undercut that understanding. 
And we want to say, I can do something good. I can look at me here. Look what I've done in this situation. Look how good I am. We want to build a case before God, and yet none of it can stand. And our legalism ultimately will fall. And grace understands the futility of building anything that will stand before God. Grace understands the futility of giving anything to God that he needs from us. God didn't need a house that David would build, build, but David would need that house. We would need that house, that structure that would come through Christ that we rest in and find peace with God. And so we find that our salvation comes first and foremost from him, that we can't do anything for him until he does something in us. So, Again, the beacon. What's the beacon tell us? Tells us something about God's plan. He establishes his plans through failure and sin. At the same time, we don't do anything for him until he does something first in it. He builds, we build on top of that. Case closed. The third principle, third point I think is important for us. And this draws us into these ideas of the promises that God gives. The promises that God gives to David for us. And it's important, these promises... By these promises, God binds himself and his name and his glory, who he is, he binds himself to our salvation and redemption. Through the promises that he gives to his people, again, they're they're unconditional, unilateral promises when he says, I will do this. They bind his people to him and he says, I will save you. And it's through these promises that we have the greatest picture of the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. That God would do that for us. To save us, he binds himself to to us. Three different kind of time frames or time horizons of of promises that God gives in this uh, this speech, in this vision to Nathan. The first one is to David. And you can see that in 9 through 11. He says to David, you know, I took you from being, you know, a shepherd in the pasture to be a prince. And then he he promises him to have a great name, to be a great name. He promises uh, the peace and rest for his people and that there would be rest um, in the land. And so he promises those things and those are immediately accomplished. And then he concludes his promises to David by saying in in verse 11, he says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that he'll build you a house. And this is the promise of what God's intentions are through David. And so the first layer, the first time horizon of promises are to David. The second ones really follow in verses 12 through 14 and 15 where it really goes to David's offspring. And it's through Solomon that the temple would be built. It's through Solomon that this, his line would continue. And so we see that as God says, I'm going to start with David. It's going to be through your offspring that this kingdom will be established. But then there's a third time horizon this text points us towards. And it's, it's a, an eternal one. In verse 16... God says this, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we have the picture here of that word forever twice as God says of what he's going to do. Your throne will be established forever. So the time horizon here of God's promises are forever. Not just for the nation, not just for David, but forever he would establish his throne and one would come that would rule on that. And so we see in God's promises, ties it to Christ, ties it to the one who would come through this line of David. But there's one more thing that's important for us as we ask about the nature of these promises. These promises describe the nature of the rule of this one, the rule of God. And you see it in verse 14 where there's two points here. One, he describes this situation 
where he says that I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. We see a picture here of adoption. We see a picture here of what God intends to do. It's not just to rule. He does rule and will and will save, but he intends to bring children into his home. And there's a sonship picture here. And indeed, if you were to jump to 2 Corinthians, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read this one. This is one of those great pictures where Paul pulls on one of these Old Testament threads and, and, and kind of explains it even further through the New Testament lens, the New Covenant lens. And he is really quoting, he, is, he has in reference this verse of, of I will be a son to him and he, uh, I'll be a father to him and he a son to me. In verse 18 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul writes, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And again, you see Paul expands it even further, not just about sons, sons and daughters. He has in view what God is doing as, as adoption, bringing men and women into his household. And then if you jump down in verse 15, you see another component of this. The component is the steadfast love, the rule and reign of this father who will lavish his love on his children. The steadfast love, this term is, a, is loaded theologically. It's, it's loaded because it is, it is God's unconditional love for his people that can never be taken away. You see that love was taken away from Saul, but this, this, this unconditional, this steadfast love is there. And you were here a few weeks ago, Lynn Andy Shack preached from Lamentations chapter 3, where Jeremiah picks up on this same thread, this same, same theme and in a more poetic kind of way says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never fail. And so you, so you see a picture there of God's steadfast love and what he will do as, as God binds himself to his people, to their salvation through the promises that he brings. But the promises involve adoption. The promises are connected with demonstrating his love for us. And so we see that God's intentions, we look at this beacon and we learn from it. What is God doing? He says, I'm going to establish my purposes in the midst of failure, in the midst of your sin. This is what I will do. He says, you can't do anything unless I do something first in you. And this last one, God's promises, in his promises, he binds himself to us. His name and his glory are tied to our salvation, to our redemption. And as you move into the New Testament, as you move into that early periods of the gospel, or you read to the prophets, you read to the Psalms, and what you have are all those present looking back to this beacon of David, this promise through David, that one would come who would be a father, that one would come and lavish his love on them. One would come and establish a throne forever and would, would rule on that throne forever. And so the prophets point back to it. And then as you come to the Gospels, you see that they're looking forward to that one. They're waiting for that one who would come. If you'll open your Bibles with me to the very first verse of, of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, some thousand years after this prophecy, this, this promise to David of what God will do. Still waiting on what God would do. This beacon that was pointing forward, they were still looking at it as a reference point. And waiting for what God would do. And Matthew opens his book in, a, in an interesting way. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. Now that might seem redundant, right? If he was a son of David, of course he was a son of Abraham. But what is Matthew doing? 
He is trying to trace for the readers to know that this Jesus Christ is the one that is the fulfillment of the beacon of Abraham that pointed toward forward. And then the beacon of David that pointed forward for the king who would come and would reign. And he says, this is the one. For thousands of years we've been waiting and now he has come. He is present and he is the one that will sit on David's throne. He is the one that will ruin. He is the, the one who will build God's dynasty. The one in which we will rest and find peace with God. The one in whom God will dwell and we with him. And if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1. These themes are throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Luke as they, as they chronicle for us um, the, the coming and the birth of Christ. But in Luke chapter 1, we see the same theme again in, in verse 32. This is the, the situation where Gabriel has come to Mary and is explaining, if you can imagine, explaining what's going to happen to her, that she's going to have a son and that this son will be God. <laughs> um, verse 32, we get a glimpse of, of this one who's coming. Gabriel says to her, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And you see here again, the ties between that beacon of what God says and who Christ was. And the reminder for us that that promise wasn't just for them. 2,000 years ago, the promise remains for us, And it's a, it's a wonderful picture for us. And it gives us great encouragement to know, okay, we read this story. We look at this beacon. We understand that same redemption that God is up to. He will establish it in our lives. He will do it on his own accord because we can't do it. He will build first and then we can build on that. He will do the work in our lives and we will follow. But maybe even more importantly that he has bound himself to us in these promises that he has given to us. And it's interesting, you read through the New Testament, you find them holding on to these promises. First, and in 2 Peter, he writes with this language of these good and precious promises that we have. And it's in these promises God has said, I have bound you to me. And if I do not come through, if I do not save you, then I cease to be who I am. And there's an interesting phrase I'm going to conclude with in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It's in the middle of a little hymn, and it's kind of a mysterious little hymn that, that, uh, that Paul gives to Timothy. But he says this, and it, he says to Timothy, he writes to Timothy, that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then he concludes with this statement, because he cannot disown himself. And you go, what does that mean that he cannot disown himself? And it means that he has bound himself to us with his promises. That even if we find ourselves faithless, which we will find ourselves, he remains faithful to fulfill his promises to bring it about in our lives. And that brings great encouragement and hope for us. As we consider Christ, let's not forget to tie it back to this promise, to go back and find out who he is through the picture of these prophets. This, this great beacon of, of the words to David and I'll allow that to encourage us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do stand in, in awe as we look at these themes throughout history. This isn't accidental history. This isn't manipulated by man. This is God-ordained. 
stories and accounts of his stories, of what you're doing. We're grateful that you're the active party, that you're the one bringing this about in our lives, that you're the one establishing your will. Father, we confess our inability to even respond to you apart from your work in our lives. We confess that we need you, and we are so grateful that we rest on those promises that you've bound us together in, that even if we are faithless, that you will remain faithful. And yet, Father, we come before you as a needy people, a people in great need of your, of your help and your assistance, and you've said to call upon you. You've said to come to you because you're our Father. Not only do you rule sovereignly with all power and all authority, but you love to hear the prayers of your people. And so we bring them to you this morning. Father, we pray for many that are sick and in need of healing. I think of Lauren Kish just recently with her, uh, this eye infection in the hospital. Uh, Father, we do pray that you'd be with her and we pray that you would bring healing to this infection, that you give the doctors wisdom. Father, we continue to pray for Caden White and their family. Um, Father, just would you comfort them? Would you enable them to look to you and to rest in you and to look to you for healing during this time for the Huffmans, for Scott and Eileen, for Eileen and her cancer continue to encourage their spirits and enable them to look to you and trust in you. For Kevin Moore as he recovers from his hip surgery for Fred Thomas and Fred's father um, in Houston. Father, be with him and to encourage them and so many others, Father. Uh, we lift them up to you. Father, we're grateful for this last week for the, for the deliveries, for the healthy deliveries of, of at least two, maybe more babies who were, who were born, a uh, little Sam Lipke and, and Elisa Clements, um, and we're grateful for them and all the, the children that you give to us. And Father, I'm reminded to pray as well for those who, who desire to have children and yet... Um, are having a difficult time in that process and struggling with the infertility. And we ask that you would meet them, that you'd be close to them and encourage their hearts and allow them, enable them to trust in you. I pray for many who are, are looking for jobs in this, in this period of time, which they seem scarce. I pray that you would be their provider and show to be uh, able, show them that you're faithful to care for them. Pray that you'd provide the right jobs at the right time and that they would be able to trust in you. Continue to pray for family promise as that continues to get off the ground and pray for wisdom for all those who lead and pray for us as a church as we prepare for our dates in January to host. And we pray for the building his church effort. Father, we we need you to be guiding and leading through this this time. We need you to... um, just to reveal what your will is and how we're to proceed. And so we ask that you'd work in each of our lives and us as a congregation to bring about your will through that. Father, we're so thrilled to be able to be a part of the lives of many missionaries um, that are sent out through grace that we get to pray for and we get to give to and support. Uh, Pray for Doug and Pam Nunke today and with navigators and ask that you would be with Doug as he continues to lead that organization, that ministry, that they would follow after you and and serve you and you would give him all that he needs for Amy in Asia and ask that you would be with her and that you would continue to strengthen her and equip her there for her ministry. We pray for Lynn and Mary Andy Shack and their ministry to internationals here as you bring the nations to us. Would you enable them and empower them to lead um, and to reveal this one, this Jesus Christ, the Messiah to them. 
Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us. Enable us now uh, as we go through this season, these next few weeks, that it wouldn't just be ho-hum. It would not just be, uh, I've done this before, and somehow it would lose the luster of really recognizing all that you've done. So would you, would you rejuvenate our hearts and our minds and remind us of all that you've done in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.